anyone can do this task, he maybe don't pass. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am doing fine. Uh, Santa came early to my house for a, a new microphone. So if I sound bad, it's Santa's fault. <laughs> it's a nice looking setup, though. I know. I feel so fancy. We'll dial it in at some point, but uh, you're looking good. Maybe I'll put some tinsel on it and make it really festive. <laughs> kind of like that. Maybe I'll do that with mine, too. We'll post some pictures of our festive setups. Um, we have got a big show today because we've got uh, two interviews plus big news from the IOC Executive Board meetings. Before we get to our interviews, we wanted to remind you that we have an affiliate store at bookshop.org. It's bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. You can find our curated lists there and get your book club books for next year. Or if you want to catch up on uh, the past books we've read too, but your purchases will go to support the show and help us cover our ongoing costs. So we would appreciate that bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. And books make lovely holiday gifts. That they do. All right, today we are talking gender in sport. And first up, we're talking about the Let Her Run movement. If you go to letherrun.com.br, you will see a kind of a horrifying short movie that depicts what used to happen with gender testing in elite sports and what women had to go through to confirm that they were actually women. And uh, one of the women behind this movement is Jackie Silva. Jackie represented Brazil in three Olympics. She played volleyball in 1980 and 84. And then in 1996, she won gold in beach volleyball with her partner, Sandra Paris. She now works with a project called Smart Athletes that encourages people to stay in school through volleyball. And she's the driving force behind the Let Her Run movement, which is against gender discrimination in sports, specifically the cases against Castor Semenya, Francine Neosaba, uh, Margaret Wambui, Duti Chand, and Shanti Sandarajan. Take a listen. Every time when I think about uh, humanity, you, you think it, uh, people are now uh, born different. You know, every time you look at babies, a, a little baby, he just born like one month, two months. Her eyes, their eyes, different. Now they they almost they're born like it. they almost talk with you with the woman. So people are born different now. We, so how are we gonna uh, uh, like it? Think about the sports now. You know, we 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 need to think about sports like differently, Nike. Not just like a physical condition side. We, di- we need to think about sport in different ways. So athletes is not just uh, like, like them. Athletes are not just make for run or jump or play. So they're human. First, they're born like as human, 
and then they become athletes. So they 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 also had their voice is so important. So when they cut off those kind of athletes, they take off their voice. The possibility to the other people who are born different live in the same like everybody else. If you, when they cut uh, uh, athletes like Semenya, uh, they 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 tell to the to the world people who are born different don't have the right to live. That's the, the message they, they, they try to pass right now. Let's go back to the beginning of why does the Olympics and, and sports in general do te- sex testing for women? And why do women only have to go through this process? Because they think if we, uh, like before, I think they, 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 they thought uh, um, maybe you could have some drugs and become more masculine, or you could be born with more uh, testosterone level. You know, that's what why they were testing because uh, you know some women could have a, a level, a high level of testosterone. And then they decide to have a, a medium about this. So they have this, okay, if it, the, to be a woman, you have to have, uh, I don't know, a number of testosterone level. And so, uh, like uh, Semenya and the, the other, Francini and Margaret, they, they kept run, they kept win, like this right now. So they decide to change this uh, level, the test level. So right now, uh, these athletes cannot run the way they, they run before because not, right now their level of testosterone is, is higher. So they can run. It's so interesting that women get targeted for having different testosterone levels, but men don't have to go through this same process, do they? No, they should. They should. The same thing. But they should. But, but they, they're not. So you're an Olympian, and you've been to uh, 1980 and 1984 and 1996. Did you go through sex testing? Only, in, only during the Moscow Games. In 1980. And what was that process like? They tested the saliva test. They did this. And at that time, I didn't, I didn't understand why, why, why I need to do that. Because, and then they explained I, I could not be a woman. <laughs> and and was that oh, the yeah. half a woman? Yeah, I don't know. Was was that the first time you had ever had a sex test? Yes, that was the first time. This, this test, this test is funny. Like you don't need to look like a man or anything like this. You know, it's funny because it's not like you you look. It's anyone can do this test and maybe don't pass. 
<laughs> and you were you were very young in 1980 to to be going through this. Yes. So the movie on LetHerRun.com is pretty horrifying because it talks about the sex test back in the the 1960s or so. 60s. Yeah. So. Yeah. When you were working on putting this together, or what did people say about the testing back in those days? Well, I think the feeling is the same as you just described right now. It's a horrible feeling, you know, at that time. That was the, the way they were doing the test. Right now is a blood test, like the test I did, a saliva test. But the conclusion of the, the, the test, that's the horrible part, you know, from 1960 to, 2000, to 2020, uh, is the same. Uh, it, it's the same thing, you know. The conclusion is if you are woman or you are not woman. Oh, no, it's just kind of incredible to think. You're at the Olympics, and suddenly you have to get this sex test. Had you, had you ever considered that you might be playing against men? No. 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 Was, uh, I always played in, uh, with, the, with the women. I have never thought about this. But, you know, if you, if you think about, uh, like, it, here in Brazil, there is a, a man who became a woman. He was he, he playing in a female team, a volleyball team, and uh, uh, Stephanie. And uh, I think that's so fair if she can play. So this is a big discussion here right now in Brazil because some people think she's a man. She she was born as a man. And she can't play, she can't play with the women. But this is a gender thing, you know. And I think she, she had to. So, to me, she's a woman, right now. And uh, I don't think she makes a, she make any difference because she was born as a man, like a man, and and turned to to a woman. So, I was just going to ask you if you would feel the same for an individual sport versus a team sport. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, I think so. I think so. I think we should talk about this. We, should, we, 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 we all should discuss about this because this is going to this gonna be more and more athletes like this. It's going to come up more and more, I think. And then... And if you if you think about this, it, I, of course it's not everyone, but for like a, like this player, this she's playing volleyball here. For to to turn to turn her whole body to become a woman, she has to to pass for all kinds of things, as the surgery or hormones, the same things they want to. Caster and the other athletes doing, you know, like right now, the the ICO wants them to to to, to take drugs or to do uh, surgery to be able to run back, 
in the Olympic Games. Do you know this? Right, right. You know. So the same thing when, like, the, this volleyball player here in Brazil, and she she born as a man and she became a woman, she had to pass through all the things to be able to play with the women. So, oh, she definitely she became a woman like this. I don't I don't say this is a good thing. I say this it's hard to say, you know what what is good for for uh, each one. But uh, like uh, Samania and uh, the other runners, imagine if he to be able to compete, they have to to do other other bad things for their body. Right, it's kind of like doping in reverse, in a sense. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly. The thing is what they, they pass the whole time said, don't dope it, don't dope it, don't do doping. Athletes can, can, can do this. Can, you know, and now they, they set them to do. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of amazing. So what can people do to help your campaign? Great. Go to the site www.letherrun.tokyo and then vote and go there and tweet it to Sebastian Koo. Yeah, that the head of international athletics, Sebastian Koo. Yes. So go to www.letherrun.tokyo or uh, hashtag let her run and uh, tweet to him to the president of the world athletes and let him know about the movement and the people who are against the to what they try to do with this incredible athletes and try to make them to change their decision until the Tokyo starts the games. Thank you so much, Jackie. You can watch the movie and learn more at letherrun.com.br and follow them on Twitter at letherrun2020 and use the hashtag letherrun as well. Absolutely everyone should watch that video because it is so important and horrifying and I was very disturbed for several hours after watching that. And you think about Women who, and, and we talked about this with Jackie, but she was on the tail end of some severe gesture, gender testing. But can you imagine going to another country where you don't speak the language, you're maybe a teenager, and they pull you into a room with some male doctors and tell you to strip so that they can poke you and figure out whether or not you're female? The whole idea is horrifying. Well, and we've noted that with Castor Semenya's case and the other athletes who have been discriminated for running, I mean, World Athletics has said, oh, Castor can run if she gets her testosterone down to a certain level. So she basically has to dope in order to meet the parameters for the the races. And, and in a world that is professing anti-doping, to promote doping for certain people— to meet some made-up criteria just sounds ridiculous. Makes no sense. Let's move on to our next athlete, 
Paralympian Ness Murby competed at the 2016 Paralympics in the sport of discus. He recently came out as transgender, so we talked with him about what that means for him competing at Tokyo and how to start the conversation of gender and sport. Take a listen. All right, Ness, recently you've come out as transgender, so how does that affect you in sport when sport is in a binary system? That's a really good question, and I think I'll start by saying it certainly opens up some explicit conversations. As the governing body uh, within sport seeks to further narrow its parameters, it's concomitantly over-articulating the definition of, of woman and female, and doing so at the cost of what I would call the integrity of uh, women at large and in opposition of what is actually the scientific reality. The world is not binary. Sport is not binary. We are all unique, and there is, there's no one size that fits all label for the box because the box is just a construct of increasing cognitive rigidity. So, you know, take into consideration the IOC transgender and, and hyperandrogenism rules from 2015 were talking about having testosterone levels below 10 nanomoles per liter for at least 12 months prior to the competition to be classed in female category. You know, in 2018, they moved that to saying you must legally be female or intersex and must get that testosterone down to below five nanomoles and for six consecutive months. So these are parameters and we're predominantly set in place to define the female class for sport. They were set to verify sporting integrity, classifying the binary. The competitive advantage is what drives the binary. But is that synonymous with protecting women in sport? Uh, gender verification was one such form of protection, and variables are going to exist regardless of the binary. We exist on a spectrum. Gender identity, gender presentation and expression, assigned gender at birth, sexual orientation, I exist on that spectrum. I'm an advocate for asking better questions, you know, for, for what purpose and at what cost. And when we're talking about the competitive advantage, it might answer the purpose, but it really doesn't bring into light the at what cost. I'm transmasculine. And since I don't fit in the charted binary of box A or box B, that makes it uncomfortable. So I guess what I'm saying is let's get uncomfortable because I am not the only and there is enough space for all of us. Because your you're coming out has been pretty recent, has there been much conversation with the International Paralympic Committee about how your gender fits into their constructs? There hasn't actually been any direct conversation with me or to my knowledge. In my experience, I've only found um, IOC policy and, and procedural information by seeking it out, and I haven't found explicit IPC resources. So, you know, that being said, what is it that's I'm likely to be facing, well, I think at the end of the day, we all need to stop coming from a place of knowing. We need to question the orthodoxies rather than accepting that um, the limitations that were handed to us are the fact. So in my coming out and in the conversations I hope will be brought about is questioning who's making the decision, why, and what's the invested interest. So 
I'd liken it to the current state of play, you know, a little nerding out here, that um, we're currently working out of an outdated operating system. So it's like when we're discussing the shift from the 1950s mono program to Microsoft DOS to Windows, and we're completely ignoring that there's Apple and Android. So that being said, I think I have heard that, that Tokyo 2021 is looking to make a statement in support of the LGBTQ plus athlete community. However, I haven't heard of the how behind that intention and whether it be driven by my coming out or other athletes that have come out, I think we need to start having more of those explicit conversations. So I look forward to them. So the Canadian Olympic Committee, I'm not sure when they did this, but they allowed the athletes on Team Canada to choose their pronouns for their bio. Was that a big deal? Speaking from my experience alone, I wasn't uh, expecting that to come out. So, so when it uh, was there, it was sort of more of a, you're filling out a form and suddenly that's a, a tick box you can select. So that being said, I, I felt uh, comforted by the shift towards openness and explicit conversation. However, that was neither preceded nor, nor followed up with such conversation. So it felt a little bit revealing to me. I think the CBC is desirous of, of being a, a support and a, a force behind its athletes. For that to come to fruition, we need to be actually making it more of a, a commonplace conversation. And yes, the steps of having pronouns uh, available for us to select is important. However, we also need to build the system of allyship behind that. We asked you about what the committee had said, but what about competitors and other athletes? Have you gotten feedback from them? Uh, I haven't been contacted directly um, from any of my uh, teammates or, or competitors. That, that being said, I, I did have one of the um, Canadian middle distance coaches reach out to me to express their personal support, and, and that was comforting. So in terms of where I'm coming from, it is certainly um, a position of not knowing. And um, that experience will, will I guess, uh, come, come more to light as, as I interact with individuals uh, going forward. Yeah, it has to be kind of difficult when everybody's quarantined and there's no competitions going on. And yet this big momentous occurrence is happening in your life. And I don't know, is there kind of a an anticipation of, of what reactions will be? Or are you planning, you know, trying to steal yourself <laughs> in any way? I certainly prefer to operate out of a place of, of lessening my cognitive distortions and uh, uh, perpetuating a fear-based assumption. But certainly I think um, in terms of a, of a general response, I'm interested as to what the collective will be. I'm not sure in terms of um, the silence, what that means. Silence certainly isn't neutral. However, I've yet to hear voices. And considering I, I didn't come out as a means of, of gaining attention, but rather paying forward the responsibility of visibility. And so I think time will, will tell with that. And, it, and it's likely to involve uh, an educational process. Yeah, well, how do you anticipate having to educate people? 
I think certainly it is likely to, to revolve around uh, being explicit um, and perhaps one conversation at a time. I think it's the uncomfortable conversations that, that often get oversimplified. So, for example, the, the sporting binary and, and hormones. I'm not an authority on this, but I am prepared to say that there's more to it than perpetuating fear-based bias. So education needs to come into play with the idea that currently science isn't clear. So the idea of relying on testosterone levels is, is a dangerous oversimplification, scientifically speaking. So once again, um, nerding out for a moment, there was a study in, in 2014 whereby blood samples were obtained from 813 volunteer elite athletes in 15 different sports. They, they profiled just under 700 of them. And the study found that 16.5% uh, of, of men had low testosterone levels, whereas 14% of these elite athlete women had high levels um, with a complete overlap between the sexes. And from that study, a further study was done that found almost 2% of male competitors had testosterone levels in the typical female range. So as the authors put it, to conclude, the IOC's definition of a woman as one who has a normal testosterone level is untenable. And so often the oversimplification um, and where education needs to begin is how are we defining these classes? Because bodies fall on a spectrum, not a binary. And this is where I say enter Castor Semenya. Castor is not trans. With naturally occurring um, higher testosterone, she's told the option is compliance or non-competitiveness. And I want to say, at what cost? Because one of the costs for this that I feel isn't talked about is that this ruling is coming as an unspoken detrimental cost. It is perpetuating the message that a woman can be not woman enough and condones the, the othering of women. And all women are women. Castor is a woman and enough, not to mention the, the effects of, of hormones um, on a person's body. So when we start to unpack this, because I think the first thing that comes to people's minds is Ness Murby in female class, he, him. How does that work? So what, what is the female body supposed to look like? What is the male body supposed to look like? And really, who are you prepared to let define you? Because to me, this is a category name problem and certainly not a me problem. And I believe that in life, whilst we are all alone, we are innately connected. Whether it's Castor, I, or, or others, we represent the uncomfortable truth that the box, the sports binary, needs to change. And what that change looks like needs to unpack the uncomfortable conversations. It's no longer acceptable you know, whether it was ever is a question, but it's not acceptable to justify discrimination or a designated opinion as being reasonable. You know, it, it's time for sport to take accountability and accept the existence of the spectrum, changing the label so it describes the parameters and stop the cycle of protecting systemic harm. We need to be protecting women in sport when we think of it as the idea of women being all women. So to protect that integrity, the, the sporting equality can't be simplified to a binary, men versus women, because the term equality has become representative of directed exclusion. 
So we need to stop thinking about whether we can be deemed enough. That, that changes how the generations to come will look at their femininity and themselves as women. And for myself, setting parameters for what that enough looks like means that I am enough. I am transmasculine. I'm meeting the competitive parameters. I compete in the female class and my pronouns are he, him. So I think we need to be asking why the sporting bodies are fighting like their life depends on it to maintain the binary. There are always trade-offs. And if the sporting body wants to implement such explicit parameters, then the trade-off has to be the label and not at the cost of women in sport, not at the cost of non-binary people in sport, and certainly not at the cost of transgender people in sport. Do you ever anticipate one day competing in the men's category? In terms of my competitive playing field at present, where I fit is in the parameters that is the so-called female class. Should I progress onto taking hormones, it would be my choice um, to, to go into the male class. And part of my remaining in the female class in present is also about, I believe, protecting the integrity of, of women in sport because I'm actually fitting within the parameters. And I realize that it poses the uncomfortable truth that sport has become about parameters. And we just need to be accountable for that and, and accept that rather than going down the path of discriminating or revoking the, the work we have done to honor women in sport. Yeah, so personally, where I stand is competitively, my class is so designated the female class. When my parameters are in line with that of the male class, then I would competitively compete in the male class. That makes sense. And as I'm listening to you, it almost feels like, oh, here you're going from one committee-defined box into another, perhaps, whereas the committees need to think about taking the boxes apart, in a sense, correct? Yeah, I think you're, you know, you're exactly on my page. Certainly... In my specific case, it is a, a great baseline to be working from to unpack the boxes. I'm Ness Murby, transmasculine, he, him, and I compete in the female class. I was me last year in 2019 at the World Parathletics Championships in Dubai. I was me in 2016 at the Rio Paralympic Games. So the only thing that has changed is my visibility. And so that's when we start to unpack the concept of phenotypical and it comes into play you know, most predominantly in, in sport in an obvious manner. There was this great quote from a study and let me just find it. It said, elite athletes are by definition physiological outliers because of their strength, speed and reflexes. Natural hormonal variations similar to other intrinsic biological qualities superior oxygen carrying capacity in the blood, for example, are part of that mix. The IOC should say so explicitly. So for me, growing up, one of my sporting heroes was the torpedo, Ian Thorpe, an Australian Olympic swimmer. And there was a lot of admiration for his out of the ordinary, naturally occurring, 
large feet, size 17. You know, flipping hemispheres, there's Michael Phelps, another swimmer from the USA, and the topic of his natural yet out of the ordinary wingspan. And then you move away from the um, uh, physiological, and I remember Kathy Freeman, an iconic Aussie Olympic sprinter, and the games where she wore, quote unquote, that suit, the swift suit. Every innovation, every individual catalyzes the conversation. I am catalyzing a conversation. And some of these conversations result in change parameters and some don't. The sporting idea in para, it's already vastly different to that of the Olympic stream. There are some very obvious and, and extensive variables. There's an individuality at play. So, all right, let's run over a quick 100 meter sprint. In para track, in track events, traditionally there are four rounds of competition heats, quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. So at the Olympics, there are always two classes per event, male and female. So at the Olympics, there's that uh, two 100-meter sprint classes to run, which means there are eight rounds of competition. Whereas at the Paralympics, there are multiple classes for an event. 2016, Rio Paralympics, there's 16 male and 14 female. So we're talking 30 100-meter sprint classes uh, to be run, which means there were like 120 rounds of competition just for the 100 meter sprints. Uh, you know, I, I love this um, this idea when we get into the maths of it because there's no one size fits all, especially when we're dealing with 7.8 billion individuals. And Para exemplifies this idea of individuality, and we applaud that. So I can accept that the system isn't perfect. But I do think that there needs to be more intentionality when we're addressing the current system and, and how it's helping to move us forward for greater inclusivity. Because to be clear, with my example about parasport, I don't think competing in a third category is the answer for the binary. I think the retirement of the binary male-female terms for the two competitive classes is the first step, since the classes are actually operating as a set of parameters that are defining the classes rather than being open to every one of these genders. I mean, not to mention that they exclude non-binary individuals. And when I think about the, the essence of true sport, sport has an opportunity. It has an opportunity to sit in the past and impose outdated morals and narratives to reinvoke the archaic practices of, of gender verification or it can choose to move towards growth, cognitive flexibility, to meet the moment and make a difference. There is space for all of us. And for what purpose is high performance sport, if not to carve out the path for every athlete, the current and the next generation to make a difference? So I have a question as to how this fits in with the issues of doping. Because mm -hmm. obviously hormones are a means to which some athletes attempt to cheat, which is obviously not what we're talking about directly, but we're going to run into the issue of when are hormones naturally occurring, what's acceptable. And, and I admit I am unfamiliar with the other medical procedures involved in terms of if there are other drugs involved in um, transitioning that would also be on the banned list. So there's this, there's 
there's a doping element to this as well that can't be ignored. I, I certainly am not the authority, but I can enlighten you into what I understand and, and also, you know, shed some perspective from, from my experience. In terms of transitioning, it's adjusting hormone levels. And I refer back to the IOC's parameters of you have to be at a certain uh, level of, of uh, testosterone nanomoles for a certain period of time before being able to compete. Now, one doesn't just walk in and say, I'm at that level. There is testing that's done and verification that's required to demonstrate that you're at those levels. So that is you know, one facet of it. Uh, you mentioned the aspect of, uh, I guess, uh, interclass cheating, so to speak. And this is where I go, why we're not talking about a binary anymore. We're talking about parameters uh, when the sporting bodies are, are setting things such as nanomoles, because mm-hmm. such as in, in general doping, if you have a blood test and you, you register having an um, illicit substance in your bloodstream, then that goes on to um, procedural uh, events that, that take into account what happened. Did you have a therapeutic use exemption? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of um, process in that. So rather than me outlining the process, I'd rather refer to the concept that there is a process. And so when we talk about the idea that the binary is no longer applicable in sport and its parameters, it's not going to be a case of an individual, let's say potentially male, who wants to compete in the female class, who goes and reduces their hormone levels or has low hormone um, levels to begin with, who castrates themselves, who et cetera, et cetera, all for the case of fitting into the female class. Because once again, I refer to parameters and much like in the para world, for us to fit into our classifications, you have to go through a verification process, which means you have to fill out forms and have specialists get involved. And it's not just a, I perceive myself to be, therefore I am. So in the case of the binary of sport, if we move to parameters, it simply becomes a case of verification and I do not have all the answers, but I would be open to having discussions whereby it's things such as assign gender at birth, then go to, you know, step three, hormonal level at present, next step, you know, muscular structure, next step, do you have anything else going on? In, in the body that affects performance, is that applicable to your specific sport or a different sport? And that's kind of where it relates to the para world. But all of this would need to be verified by science. And that's why I say, I am certainly not the authority. And verifying this, obviously creating a, a structured step-by-step entry system is complicated, but it can be done appropriately. And if you're going to start making parameters or continue to to set parameters for sports classes, then there also has to be an accountability for creating an an entry system and a verification system for that. Interesting. I mean, it it does what my like, oh gosh, I don't even know how to say, because my, my brain, it's the whole topic forces my brain to kind of twist and think in many different ways. And it's difficult to see where there could be adjustments. And I imagine that's the case of, especially in some of these sports. 
I do think though you're you're onto something. It's yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right, please, right. Please, but yeah, but it, it, like especially in sports like athletics where they have, I mean, I think maybe the people in charge have come up with, oh, I I can't think a different way we're going to put on extra parameters so that we protect this idea of woman or definition of what a woman is to so we have a, a women's category and not, and I can't even make a whole thought here Ness but it, it is it'll be interesting to see how these discussions progress and how people's as they learn more and as science teaches them as we get more facts, how we can change this to make make sport more even and open for, and I think the the openness is more important for people who are on a gender spectrum. It's not a question of being right or wrong. It's a question of cognitive flexibility. So as you yourself put it, it's it's hard to formulate the the concept. It's it's hard to explore the the options because there is this overarching limiting belief that it must be binary and there are a lot of things in life that we think of as being a two option system and inevitably there's there's always a third option and it requires exploring it so i think what comes to my mind as being one of the biggest uh, trade-offs here is the integrity of, of women in sport and the idea that the parameters are being justified as protecting women when in fact it is excluding them. And that's part of why I believe changing the, the labels will help increase cognitive flexibility because certainly changing the labels doesn't increase the inclusivity but it does, in my opinion, reduce some of the harm of the statement that is being enough. And that's where systems are always imperfect. So we can't sort of find a system that's going to make anything fair or equal for everyone. And sport is, you know, just like every other system where we're creating a, an elite group of acceptable entrants. And so if we just moved that cognition to, to take on board the idea that if we just called it something else, could we start to work in opening up the conversations better? Because I certainly don't want to be diminishing the, the work that's been done to protect the integrity of women in sport. And at the same time, I'm sort of watching the slippery slope of the greater the parameters the, the more that are being unpacked is simply about re-articulating the definition of womanhood. And I don't believe we should be doing that. And especially as a, as a trans-masculine individual, I'm not interested in seeing women excluded from sport. Where do you think the international conversation can start when you have you know, major players like Russia saying things like, we don't have transgender people in our country. And where they're not even allowing the conversation to exist as acknowledging. I think it all stems back to accountability. We put, uh, you know, I say we, <laughs> me and what army, but, but we as the individuals 
are in a position to put our faith into the governing bodies, into the IOC's decision-making ability, into the IPC's decision-making ability. And I think that those governing bodies need to take on the accountability of setting accountability standards, basically, and saying, okay, we've, we already have these parameters in place. So you're arguing me over a label, but this isn't actually about whether your country has transgender individuals, which you know, um, I, I certainly um, would, would beg to differ on, on, on that. But um, yeah, I think it does really just come down to enforcing the parameters. If you're going to take the time to set them, then, then leave them as, as parameters and hold each country accountable to meeting them. You have entry standards, you know, there's, there's no leeway on that. We have doping standards, there's no leeway on that. So holding people accountable to a, a parameters standard and a standard of safety, because this also comes down to protecting the safety of individuals. This isn't just a trans issue, this is any person is now at risk of being held to gender verification. And we need to have a firmer practice in place that has us meeting the parameters that then doesn't have an individual being subjected immediately to verification. And I think that that by holding that accountability in place, you know, the conversation needs to start by removing the labels because the labels are now harming. They're not helping us to understand what, what we're talking about. They're actually distracting and deflecting away from what is happening in sport. Um, my brain is broken. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, my brain is twisted so much during this conversation. It's like, what are you doing to me? It's, it's really hard to, to grasp to go, but I was told this is how it works. You know, it's, it's the idea of, um, you know, I was told this is how you wash the dishes. And talk about, you know, oversimplification, but let me, you know, take a chance to oversimplify cognitive flexibility. There is not one way to wash the dishes, but we are quicker to question that than we are to go questioning a system that's been put in place by a sporting authority. And especially when we're being told that it is for the greater good, for the protection of. And so, yeah, it, it really messes with our minds because none of us really fit into a box. We're 7.8 billion individuals. The, the greatest thing we have in common is that we are all unique. Yeah. Oh, this will be interesting to follow. Yeah, over the next totally. years and probably decades, I would imagine. It's going to take a long time to to come it, to it's some scary sort of terms. at present because of course the movement that's being made for the the younger generations, the up and coming athletes who I mean, you need to hear that there's a space for you or not be brought up on the win at all costs and whether I'm enough, you know, Sport holds power in the sense that it, it is a powerful place to be speaking from, especially when there is so much uh, rules and rigidity within it. And I certainly think, as you say, for the next 
decade. Um, you know, may it may it be sooner that that um, some of that flexibility creeps in. But with all the work that's coming this year, I do have hope that as a, a global consciousness, we will begin to realize that the world is a lot more on the spectrum than we we thought. And that might make us uncomfortable, but really uncomfortable is neither good nor bad. It is just uncomfortable. It means that we are just not in the the norm that we have grown to become so acquainted with, you know, get outside your comfort zone. There is enough space for all of us. Thank you so much, Ness. You can learn more about Ness at his website, tougherthan.com, and follow him on Twitter and Insta at Ness Murby, and we will have links to all of that in the show notes. We're going to have Ness back on the show next year. Oh my gosh, we had a great conversation with him, and we talked so much about how visually impaired sports work, or at least Ness is a, a uh, competes in para-athletics, but has also competed in goalball and powerlifting. So learning about how that works and how paradiscus works was a, just an amazing conversation. So you'll want to tune in next year for that. And there will be a slight discussion about Lexington the dog. All right, let's move on to uh, see what's going on with our team Keep the Flame Alive. Welcome. Oh, this is fantastic news. Aaron Jackson, our speed skater, is a new member of Team Toyota, which a huge deal for um, there are many companies that have uh, team athletes as well, which means that they get a lot of financial sponsorship. And Aaron Jackson got selected for Team Toyota. I hope this means she gets a pickup truck. Oh, that would be cool. Snowboarder Chloe Kim was revealed as the jellyfish on the U.S. TV show, The Masked Singer. Do you watch this show? I know. I don't watch it either, so I don't know how it works. I do know that there's people masked up in huge costumes and big masks, and there's singing going on, and somebody has to guess who these people are? Correct. Okay. She was the jellyfish. I did not know she could sing. Apparently, she was very good. Oh, that's that's interesting. You may have to go back and watch it. I know. The dulcet tones of Jason Bryant's movie, The Last Champion, is now available on digital release. It's on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and Google Play. Dr. Victoria Jackson was on 60 Minutes to speak about secondary sports in colleges and how they're struggling to survive during the pandemic. I did watch this segment on 60 Minutes, and she was just fascinating because college sports in the U.S. are a huge feeder into the Olympic system, and not just for the U.S., but for other countries as well, because a lot of other athletes come to America to go to college, and they get to play college sports in this country, and then they go back and compete for their own countries. And because of the pandemic, college colleges are cutting their budgets right and left and have really prioritized football and basketball especially men's basketball. So that means other sports have been getting cut and that's going to wreak havoc with basically the whole training ground for Olympic sports in the U.S. Jason Bryant has been posting a lot about this in regards to wrestling, that wrestling teams are getting cut. Um, you know, it's one of the first teams that they cut because there is no gender parity. So if they have to deal with Title IX, oh, we'll get rid of men's wrestling and that will allow us to keep football. So a lot of people are talking about this, so I'm not surprised that 60 Minutes got on this. At the second week of biathlon competition at Kontiolati, Finland, Claire Egan placed 48th in the 7.5-kilometer sprint with the U.S. relay, women's relay. Uh, she placed 9th, and then in the 10-kilometer pursuit, she placed 49th. So she's 
doing well shooting. Uh, skiing still a problem, but she's ranked 47th on the World Cup circuit as of uh, today. But she'll be in Hochfilzen, uh Austria this weekend for two more weekends of competition. So more chances so right, to wait. So right fee is not being put in a corner this season. That's right. And Ken Hanscom's company ticket manager has launched a podcast and slash video series of conversations with leaders in sponsorship from sports and entertainment. You can find it at ticketmanager.com. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Let's move on to some Tokyo 2020 news. Inside the Games is reporting that around 18% of Japanese Olympic ticket holders requested refunds. That's not much. No, it's not. Although I was surprised it was actually that much, to be quite honest. The organizers of the Games have also said that spring will be the time where they figure out how many fans they will allow to have. So it's still a few months off, but they'll look at the situation in springtime and make a decision on how many people would be able to come and how many from overseas would be able to come and who. So still some time for that. Sit tight. We're going to weave in the IOC executive board meeting into our Olympic updates, because a lot of what they talked about at this meeting had to do with decisions made for specific Olympic Games. So one of those was how long athletes would be allowed to stay at the village. And definitively came up, they will be allowed to come in five days before their competition, maximum, and they will have to leave within two days of their competition being over. It'll be interesting to see, based on what we talked to Renskalak about with the adjusting biorhythms and adjusting to uh, jet lag, how long they're hanging out in Asia beforehand and where are they? Where can they be? Right. And remember they had all those towns that were adopting athletes and teams? Right. And so I, they didn't mention anything about that program, and I'm, I'm not sure that the IOC executive board would that would be on their minds first off i'm sure that's more of an an organizer level activity but i do wonder what they're doing at that town level to uh do the, do the towns out. want us anymore <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to beijing 2022 More test events have been canceled, so the International Ski Federation has now canceled all of its test events for Beijing due to COVID-19. This includes freestyle skiing and snowboarding, ski jumping, Nordic combined, alpine, and cross-country. So more venues to not be tested by all of the athletes, but I'm sure the local organizers are testing them in some capacity. I hope so, because otherwise they're not going to be safe. Right. I'm sure they're testing them with local athletes, but it does mean that the competitors won't have a chance to see what the courses are like before they go. Good luck. Don't break a leg. Let's move on to Paris 2024. Big news from Paris 2024 and the IOC executive board meeting is that the event program has been finalized. And your boyfriend, Kit McConnell, was on the uh, IOC press conference talking about it. So happy to see him again. (laughs) No, I know. I missed him. The big deal that you will hear about uh, Paris 2024 
from now until then is that they have achieved gender equality with this. And what do they mean by gender equality? They mean that the number of athletes will be equal between men and women. So they have managed to reduce the athlete quota down to 10,500 athletes and that that 600 less than will be at Tokyo 2020. And I believe Tokyo is a reduction from Rio because Rio got really bloated. So out of the 10,500 athletes, out of the 10,500 athletes, 5,250 will be men, 5,250 will be women. Does not mean that they will have equal number of events and sports between men and women. It'll be interesting to see how that breaks down among countries. Oh, yeah. So, for example, obviously the United States, Canada, Western Europe will be sending a significant number of women. But when you get to countries that don't traditionally support women's sports, will they be forced to be able to compete in certain events, send female athletes? And that would be a nice move in that direction. Maybe we should keep an eye on that now when the Tokyo opening ceremonies happen. Right, because I would hate to see the gender parity that the IOC is going for just mean that Western countries send more women. That's not going to move the needle the way that I think the IOC is trying to move the needle. Right. So uh, we'll see. Kit also said that this would reduce the number of officials by a thousand, which is big when you're talking about who's paying for what. So that's going to help their budget. And uh, they're going to have more mixed gender events than ever before. I believe your mixed skeet shooting event is now in the program. Yes, it is. Yay. And they've added four new sports as additional sports. Sport climbing, skateboarding, surfing, and breaking. Oh, Lord. But it's going on their focus of youth. Is the Olympics trying to make itself a joke? Breakdancing? I don't know, because that is what the media is going to focus on. And that's unfortunate. I see breaking as youthful, but I don't see it as a high participation sport. I don't know what they think. Yeah, so we'll see what happens over the next four years. Our friend Rich Perlman did a great analysis of the winners and losers in the different sports in terms of quota because some events got cut, like uh, in race walking, the men's 50-kilometer race got cut because the options were either cut the race or add a 50-kilometer for women, but if you do that, you're going to add more athletes, and we can't add more athletes because we are sticking to this 10,500 level. And also, God forbid, you have women passing out on the course. Right, well, or uteruses, because, you know, 50K is a long way for a woman to walk. I know. Delicate (laughs) flowers. But there is an option for a mixed-gender event for race walking, so all hope is not lost for men who were trying to earn two medals. So we, we will see about that. Boxing, men are losing an event, women are gaining an event, and they still have to deal with the same number of quotas, and the IOC is going to choose what weight classes are going to be in the Paris Olympics. Aiba, not getting to choose. Interesting. Boxing should be grateful it's still in. Uh, yeah, and I, I think so. If that's, if that's going to even hold true between now and 2024, because they are still at risk. Right. And speaking of still at risk, weightlifting, oh, did they get a message sent to them? So in Rio, there were 260 
athletes in weightlifting. In Tokyo, there will be 196. In Paris, there will be 120. So 76 fewer athletes are going. They are going to have just 10 weight classes total among men and women. So those are not going to be finalized until 2021. And Kit was very adamant that weightlifting's place is not confirmed in the Olympic program. You know, just, I think it was last week, two more medalists from London 2012 Mm -hmm. lost their medals weightlifting because of doping. And we can't have an entire sport. And I've said this a thousand times where you wipe out entire podiums, entire top fives and keep any prestige. If you're going to put breaking in, at least I don't think people are doping in breaking. I mean, I don't think steroids are going to help you spin faster on your head. So at least that'll be a clean sport as opposed to weightlifting, which is not. Right. And it really, when you think about entire podiums wiped out and the Olympics has to think about, oh, this event that we just staged is a total sham because what people saw in their homes and on TV was doctored. Right. And they, I mean, like, when when you think about that, like, we can't show these competitions anymore because they're they're meaningless. Yes. Because the entire thing's going to get wiped out when we get the blood test back. Right. We had talked about all these different events uh, that international federations were lobbying to have added to the program. And this I thought was funny because because Kit was also quite adamant. Yeah, we are not adding any additional events to the program. So you'll see some new events in there, but they are in the program at the cost of other events being taken out. So one Example is canoeing. They took out the K1 200 meter event and they're replacing it with extreme canoe. And extreme canoe is, I think I thought of it like snowboard cross, but you have two athletes competing head to head. They're in the same type of boat. So that's parody there. They start on a platform, probably a couple of meters above the water. And when the race starts, they go down this ramp, plop into the water, go down a course. They have to pick, pick basically pick a side and do uh, a regular uh, canoe slalom course. So they'll have to go around different barriers. But uh, in the middle, they also have to do a barrel roll. Ah. I know. <laughs> Although if it's, if it's a hot day and that water's cool, maybe it's refreshing? No. Almost drowning is never refreshing. Uh, Kit was saying they had a very long discussion about cross-country because World Athletics really wants cross-country back in the Olympics, but they couldn't make it work. And one of the stipulations was if we are having new events, we cannot have new venues. You have to use existing venues. Well, cross-country needs country to cross, basically. So they had looked at things like the mountain biking venue. They had looked at the eventing venue from Equestrian, and they— they said it was going to be too expensive to repurpose that for cross country, which was interesting to me because I wondered what in the venues would have to change to make it viable for cross country. Yeah, my immediate thought was the eventing for equestrian if it's good enough for the horses. Yeah, I don't know. But you know what would not require a new venue? What? Tug of war. <laughs> so you think. Who knows? Right in the infield. Of the athletic stadium. I want tug of war back in so bad. Maybe maybe LA twenty twenty eight? 
I'm all for that. And there were some other events that they had uh, talked about. Like we had we had mentioned this multi-day sailing event, and they said, yeah, that's going to be too hard to do uh, security-wise. So they said no to that. And then uh, coastal rowing was also another one that they wanted to put in, too challenging to put in. Again, cost and complexity. Exactly. Uh, another interesting thing about Paris 2024, and this is something I learned uh, attending part of Host Cities annual conference, Paris 2024 has a carbon budget. So Georgina Grenon, who is the director of environmental excellence, said that they have set a carbon budget. So carbon gets put into every managerial decision and they use software to track the carbon emissions. And if it's not in the budget, they had to find a way around it. Is Tahiti really in the carbon budget? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they have a big carbon budget. We don't know what the carbon budget is, but they did say Fair. they were trying to budget for carbon, which I thought was really interesting because this is one of the first times I've heard of somebody doing that. But they are hoping that they will be able to better anticipate carbon use and how this methodology is helping sports realizing what their carbon impact is. I also wonder if for Tahiti nobody is considering the cost of flying back and forth. I wonder if somebody is just thinking, oh, well, the athletes will be in Tahiti and that's it. And they're already in that area of the world for competitions anyway. Right. So they'll just be in Tahiti and not come for the rest of the Olympic experience. Meanwhile, you know that there's going to be IOC members who are going to have to check that out and get back to Paris. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe they won't be allowed. Maybe I will not get to see Tiabak in a grass skirt and a coconut bra. And I will be very disappointed. <laughs> uh, I've been practicing my umbrella drinks to make for him. <laughs> and just a little bit of IOC news from that executive board meeting. Just wanted to follow up on something we had mentioned before, the Belarusian situation. So the IOC has taken... Uh, measures against the National Olympic Committee of Belarus. The IOC is banning the elected members of the Belarus National Olympic Committee from all IOC activities. So this includes their president, uh, Alex Lukashenko, their first vice president, Viktor Lukashenko, and uh, NOC executive board member, Dmitry Baskov, among others. It does not include their elected athletes representative. Those people will be banned from IOC events, so they will not be allowed to go to the Olympics in Tokyo as of now. All of the payments that are uh, Olympic scholarships, the IOC is going to pay them directly to the athletes. They're not going to, because usually they make a payment to the NOC and the NOC disperses that money. And no, no, no. Not anymore. They're requesting that all international federations allow eligible uh, Belarusian athletes to take part in qualifying events. So they have to go to the athletes and not to the NOC. And uh, there will not be any discussion of Belarus hosting future IOC events. What they would be, maybe they would be in the running to host meetings or uh, a summit or something like that, because I don't see them bidding for games anytime soon. And they're going to monitor the situation and change it accordingly. So this immediately makes me think of Jason Bryant when he was describing many of the Eastern European officials in wrestling, where he says they wag their fingers and say, no, no, 
It's like the IOC is doing that to Belarus. No. That's that's pretty apt, I think. So we no. will we'll continue to monitor that situation and see. Uh, journalists asked a little bit about well, whether Belarusian athletes would have to walk under a different flag. And I don't think that's the talk at this point, but we don't know. Well, I'm glad to see the IOC working to protect the athletes and punish the corrupt officials. Yes. It feels like they're going about this the right way, going after the problem, not attacking the athletes who have no control as to what their committee does. Mm -hmm. And uh, most importantly, uh, from the executive board meeting, did T-Buck wave goodbye? I don't know. Did he wave goodbye? Yes, he did. Oh, yay. But but it was so funny because when he was saying his like closing remarks and saying goodbye and happy holidays to everybody, he kept looking to the side. And I kept wondering, like, because it was kind of like, is he going to wave? Is he going to wave? Come on, T-Bong. And he kept looking to the side. And I kept wondering, is there a young person from the communication staff there to monitor him? And then he did a wave. As he should. <laughs> and it was like an early Christmas present for me because... Kit was there. Exactly. You got a wave from T-Bach and from comments from Kit. Friend. Comments from Kit. What else do I need? Not too much. And more. a new microphone. <laughs> All right. Chris well, came early in the Keep the Flame Alive house. Very good. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Let us know your opinions about gender and sport. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and Keep the Flame Alive Podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we will have on Ruth and Chris from Olympapod for a big announcement. So please tune in for that. And as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. prepared to let define you.